0: Hi, everyone. My name is Dean and you're listening to the MLOps podcast. As you probably know, machine learning in general and and data science are two fields that are evolving all the time, and it's really hard to keep up to date. Specifically, the area of bringing machine learning into production or into the real world seems like it's very confusing. There's a lot going on and it's hard to make sense of all that's happening around you. Um, But on the other hand, there are a lot of smart people that are doing great work in bringing their own projects into production. And we've had a chance to speak with a lot of these people but it definitely seems like the information is not widespread enough and a lot of people don't know of best practices and how other teams work. So that's why we decided to start this podcast where we'll be speaking with people who are working in various types of machine learning teams and hearing about how they are bringing their projects into production I hope you find this interesting, and let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the MLOPS podcast. My name is Dean, your host, and today I have with me Charlene Chambliss. Uh Charlene holds a master's in statistics from CSU and a bachelor's in psychology from Stanford. She was a data analyst at Crunchbase, a data scientist at Curology, and a machine learning fellow at Sharpest Minds. She was then a senior software engineer at Primer AI, where she took part in building Primer Automate, an AutoML platform for NLP tasks, and she is now an incoming senior software engineer at Aquarium Learning, where she's building other amazing things. Um, So welcome, Charlene. It's great to have you here.
1: Hi, great to be here.
0: Um, So, You are sort of an expert in in the area of getting NLP systems into production, and I'm curious if you were always especially drawn to NLP as a field, or did you happen to find yourself working in it?
1: Well, I started out in data science more generally. Um, I got interested because I saw kind of all of the cool ways that it was being used in sort of socially impactful ways. Um, So... Uh, different applications of ML, like um, remote sensing for deforestation, and um, just other interesting things like that, civic data analysis to reduce traffic fatalities, all that kind of cool stuff. Um, And so I was like, okay, how do I get deeper into ML um, after I sort of had my data science experience at Curology? Um, And then I was thinking you know, about the different subfields, and I realized that I have kind of an affinity for language. Um, I've always just really liked kind of analyzing the nuances of language and I was a big reader as a kid and all that stuff. So it kind of seemed like a natural fit uh, for that reason. And also because like I saw NLP as a little bit more welcoming for people uh, from like slightly more unconventional backgrounds, I guess, like myself. because I uh, majored in psychology and not, you know, computer science or electrical engineering or something, um, which tends to be more common in kind of general ML or the uh, the other subfields. And so I noticed that people in NLP, you know, like a lot of them had pretty diverse backgrounds, but had still made really interesting contributions. Um, And so that was kind of a draw to me for sure.
0: Interesting. Do you think that that's sort of a... uh people thing or the like the specifics of nlp make it more amenable to to the very very background like uh, to to sort of the, the most complex models that we've built right so far have been nlp models or arguably nlp models like maybe people don't agree with this but um but but you, you couldn't say that NLP is a less complex area. And so you, you, you might say like, maybe it's less complex so people come into it. So I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts? Like, why is it more diverse compared to other areas of machine learning?
1: Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think it's a combination of what you said. Um, so one thing is kind of, the people like the kinds of people who tend to be interested in doing things with language uh, just come from all sorts of different backgrounds. You know, they might come from like a literature background or a linguistics background or in, uh, like a um, language major background or something like that. Uh, and then they kind of moved into NLP like from that academic sort of uh, approach. Um, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought a little bit.
0: <laughs> no, no, it makes sense. Uh, I- I feel like I've met a few people that have sort of uh, studied linguistics. And I don't know why this might be just the random the, the random group of people that I've met there, but I feel like people that study linguistics are some of the most excited, enthusiastic people that I've met. So maybe maybe that means that it's like it, it's a draw. And I, I also think that language has something about it which makes it kind of kind of unique. It's sort of what makes us unique. So maybe that's sort of part of the part of the draw. It's like a more elementary part of being human. So it makes sense that AI is is sort of has stronger foundations there, but also that it's a draw for a lot of people because it's very human uh, to to think about language.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, And I think one more point maybe is just like some of the details of the ML. So like for one thing, you know, computer vision models Uh, you have to understand a lot about kind of convolutions and Fourier transforms and like stuff that you would kind of only have been exposed to if you had sort of a physics background. Um, And so like that can be a little bit, I don't know, I don't want to say like intimidating, but you know, if if it's basically mainly just matrix multiplication that you have to think about, then that uh, simplifies things a little bit. Um, Not to mention, you know, with NLP, we have um, Hugging Face, which has uh, given us this beautiful, like, very high-level abstract interface that you can use in order to build these models, Um, which I think there's still a little bit more, like, PyTorch fiddling and stuff that you have to do for computer vision.
0: Interesting. So just because this is, like, (laughs) this is a personal thing, but Fourier transforms, I, I, like, they get a bad, they get a bad rap. Um, I guess they are like objectively, um, more complicated than other, uh, um, things that happen in the math world that are related to, you know, meaningful, uh, applicative things in the real world. Um, but I do want to recommend just if anyone's listening or watching and wants to, better understand it. I think the YouTube channel, uh, Three Blue, One Brown has a great video on Fourier transforms. It's just something that I, I personally remember. So I, d- I did study physics and I remember the the, the second year basically going into the first uh, um, class and I didn't study it in my first year as opposed to many of the people that I studied with. And it was kind of a culture shock. Um, but in the end, I mean, it's, it's fun to, to understand it. And I think that there are really good videos today. So I, I recommend that um but i guess we're, we're here to talk about ml and ml off. so I'm, I'm curious like obviously getting models to production has its challenges no matter what type of model you you work on um but one of the things that surprised me when i was uh, speaking to you the first time um was that sort of there are a lot of unique things about getting machine learning uh, uh of models into production when we're talking about NLP systems, and this is not necessarily related just to the model, but also to working with the data. So I'm curious, like, what do you th- see as the main differences and constraints between working with NLP and any other ML subfield?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think other ML subfields have had kind of a lot of success uh, solving problems with sort of um, smaller to moderate-sized models that are mm-hmm. somewhat more easily deployable. Um, Whereas like all of the best models for NLP nowadays, like Roberta, GPT-3, and all of its descendants, um, basically any large transformer variant, they're massive. You know, mm-hmm. they can be like uh, you know a gigabyte of space um, in your memory, uh, like on your um, your virtual machine, and so that can be uh, pretty tough to work with just operationally. Um, It requires like very powerful GPUs in order to like run inference in a reasonable amount of time Um, and like just the compute costs of running these kinds of models can be very high and really eat into your margins like if you're a business trying to actually make use of these things. Uh, And it it gets even worse if you're like the type of business that your product is only valuable if every customer gets to have their own custom model. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you have to actually like manage the costs of like deploying all those models for inference. Um, So that can be kind of rough, but people right now are looking into different ways to shrink models, such as like pruning, distillation, um, quantization, uh, running examples through only some layers, Uh, One thing we've used is something called inference triage uh, at Primer, um, Mm -hmm. where you kind of use a smaller model to um, gatekeep like your your larger model. So it kind of handles the easy examples. And then if something is a a more difficult example, it passes it on to the big model that can save you uh, a lot of uh, time and cost. Um, The second thing that makes uh, MLOps challenging for NLP is just it's really hard to do data augmentation in a way that's like actually semantically valid um, and automated because like language is discrete and contextual. So if you change uh, like a given word in a sentence to try and make like a second example that's slightly different. Uh, let's say like you have, I love this person. And then you have, I adore this person. like those two things are synonyms, but the connotation of each word is kind of different enough that they're like not quite the same. Um, whereas with something like computer vision, you know, if you, uh, if you just like cut part of the image off or something like that, it's still more or less the same image, um, just with that part missing. Uh, so it's a little bit different in that sense. Um, another thing is that a lot of tasks are actually really hard to automate or really hard to evaluate without having humans in the loop. Um, And like, those are also the tasks that are like (laughs) the most useful uh, sort of applications of NLP, like uh, translations um, Mm -hmm. and summarization, uh, particularly anything that is taking a sequence and going to another generated sequence. Um, So like, there's no such thing as kind of an automated fact checking algorithm. So if you have a summarization model and it's outputting like completely made up facts that were not in the original article, like Mm -hmm. you have to have a human read that and notice that because like, you know, if you're using rouge score or like one of the other traditional metrics, like it's just going to measure token overlap, like it has no sense of like whether it's actually true and useful to a human.
0: yeah so those are kind of
1: the main things
0: (laughs) there are so many interesting things that you said there i i I have a a few sort of follow-up questions just um like today i was reading over a facebook discussion where someone was saying like um so i'm for maybe some of the people don't know like i'm i'm in israel um we speak hebrew uh and and so someone is trying to train a large language model for hebrew um, and apparently there's not that many languages in the world that have large language models actually trained for them from scratch. So I'm not talking about like fine tuning and stuff like that. Um, so he was asking for advice from people that have had experience training large uh, large ML models. And basically the overwhelming advice was everything you know from smaller models doesn't really apply to larger models. It's like a different class of problem. And some of those things are, are the things that you, you just described now um, I, I think that the first thing that you said that was interesting to me is like the, the model triage. So, I mean, I feel like the idea is very intuitive. I'm very curious on how the sort of application actually looks. I'm guessing that there are no frameworks for that, right? Like, is this something that you had to custom tailor for your use case? So does that work like by you the model, the smaller model predicts and also provides a confidence interval, and then depending on that it either Goes to the larger model or not? Is, is that does that make sense?
1: Yeah. So at Primer, any kind of um, custom pipeline stuff like that that we would have to build, um, uh, they have um, sort of their own ML platform uh, mm-hmm. to handle that, um, and so we kind of just compose it out of pieces. Uh, so like we have the deep learning library. Um, and then uh, the deep learning library has the individual models. And then, uh, you know, kind of on top of that, you have a pipeline orchestrator that's kind of uh, running the documents through the different
0: models. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then for augmentation, like w- when, when I first heard about the sort of the challenges in data augmentation from NLP, from you, the, the thing that sort of made sense to me is. Um, computer vision, like most of the, the applications that people know are handling sort of natural images. And they're like, if you have a tree with a bird on it and then you remove the bird, the tree still makes sense. Um, but in language, there's this whole thing, like everyone who speaks more than one language and, and sort of has another language, which is maybe um, sort of native, They might look at someone some sentence that someone else wrote and it just doesn't make sense but you don't know to pinpoint why it doesn't make sense like something grammatical or or i don't know whatever it is it it just doesn't click and and you know to point that out but you don't know exactly to explain why and i feel like people it's much more intuitive to people in, in sort of uh, the, the context of images or videos than it is in the context of language. And so since we can't define the, the problem properly, it's hard to pass that on to a computer uh, um, in a sense. And, and obviously deep learning is trying to take over for that issue by sort of letting the computer understand for itself. But when you need to define the data, then that task is still on you to, to a certain extent. Um, but But yeah, I, I guess, when you do uh, work on data augmentations in in NLP, like, is there a way or some recommendations you have for being able to actually understand what's going on, uh, make sense of whether um, augmentations make sense, especially if you can't, if it's like unfeasible to just look at everything, right? Like, uh, ideally, you just go over the examples and make sure, but but if you can't do that, is there some rule of thumb or, or technique to understand what's going on?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, so first, I want to mention that there are some frameworks nowadays that are making data augmentation for NLP a little bit easier. So they'll have a bunch of different rules that you can use and customize to like generate new examples from a given example, uh, and then you know you still have to look through those manually to make sure that like uh, you know they're they're not too weird or crazy or different. Um, but it helps with the process a lot, I think. Um, and then the second thing is, if you don't wanna go that route, um, what you can actually do is kind of just expand uh, the space around your current examples um, and just get more uh, documents that look somewhat like, uh, you know, the documents that your model found challenging, for example. And so you can of project your documents into sort of the the embedding space um, generated by that particular document vector and then you can kind of do a nearest neighbor search for maybe the Hmm. the documents around it and then you can sample those. Um, This of course requires you know having access to a very large unlabeled data set that happens to be the same distribution as as whatever documents uh, your model is not doing well on so I guess that's not necessarily a given.
0: (laughs) And and Uh, a good embedding function.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, oftentimes, people will just use, uh, you know, the the output from the hidden layers of the model, for example.
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess there's also like now all the standard embedding models um, that that are accessible, like a uh, uh, word 2 vec and things like that. Um, but yeah, I guess. Data somehow always becomes the issue, right? So I know that that sort of data labeling is part of the platform that that uh, you you're working on. Um, can you share like what the role that has within the sort of broader workflow and and how important that is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's been kind of a paradigm shift in NLP over the last few years. Um, where initially in order to make NLP models work, you know, you were training like an RNN or a CNN, and you needed like tens of thousands of examples of like the specific task that you were doing. Um, Nowadays, we have these giant transformer models and they've been pre-trained on all of this internet text. And so they already like kind of have enough context to like roughly understand like the rules of language and kind of how things in a sentence tend to relate to each other and stuff like that. Um, and so what you can do nowadays is you only need like, you know, maybe in the range of a few thousand examples, uh, just to get to like, you know, 80 to 85 F1 score. Um, and so you can get like a pretty good model with like, uh, relatively few examples. Um, but the, the thing that's different is that like, instead of creating kind of a bunch of, um like potentially noisy sort of unsupervised data or semi-supervised data, um, like you could when you know you had 100,000 examples. Uh, now you need to be a lot more careful about kind of which examples you give the model because it's so smart that it can be swayed very easily by wrong data. Um, and so extra attention needs to be paid to kind of the data labeling process. And there needs to be kind of a lot more QA Uh, there needs to be much stronger um, task definitions, everyone needs to be exactly on the same page about how to handle certain edge cases, Um, and so that becomes very important in kind of new NLP land.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I I think that it's interesting, Um, the same discussion that I'm describing now about training large language models, the first thing that was mentioned about the data is that counterintuitively, you want to go quality over quantity, because, models can learn so many bad things, uh, the larger they get, then you, you have to make sure that you're throwing out the bad examples. Otherwise you're, you can spend a lot of money and time on training a big model and then having it learn a lot of noise, which is useless. Um, so I, I feel like this is sort of an all roads lead to Rome sort of thing where no matter which avenue of machine learning you go down, you get to the point where like data quality matters. Um, and, and I remember like the first time you and I spoke, I was really excited about the fact that you were really excited about data quality. So I'm, I'm curious like why you are excited about it and how do you get more people excited about it? Because in a lot of cases you speak to data scientists and they're like, oh, data quality is the thing I'm waiting for someone else to take away from me. Um, so yeah, how, how do you think about that?
1: Um, I think that caring about data quality is actually really empowering um, because Personally, in my ML career, like what I've noticed is that uh, getting more data and getting better data for your model is actually much higher impact on model performance than like any amount of hyperparameter tuning or like architecture tweaking or any sort of more pure ML staying in the code sort of fanciness. Um, like I would rather have a thousand more labeled examples than a comprehensive hyperparameter search any day of the week. Like the 1000 examples could give me another like 10 F1, whereas hyperparameters are gonna give me maybe like two or three F1 max. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's that's exciting, not just for um, like your potential impact uh, as an ML engineer, but it's also exciting from the business perspective because like, you don't need to have kind of an army of research data scientists and ML engineers uh, just to get to like a pretty good model in NLP. like all you need is the kind of rigor and patience to create a well-defined task, uh, and to reinforce and adjust those definitions carefully as the new edge cases emerge. Um, the NLP tooling is just so good nowadays that NLP models are within reach for anyone with good critical thinking skills. Really,
0: that's a that's a strong uh, snippet from this episode. I, I mean, I tend to agree, and I think that that's uh, for good or for bad. Like if. If your dream is to do hyperparameter tuning and just playing <laughs> around with architecture, then I mean, I, I think that there are still cases where that makes sense. But I feel like the the, the majority of cases, you need to start with working on on data. Um, so yeah,
1: for sure. Um, like if you do want to do that, you know, go work for Google or Facebook or OpenAI. Um, but most most places are not going to need that for the kind of tasks that they're tackling
0: yeah yeah and I, I think that that sort of makes sense right like they're um, it, it, in most companies you're trying to build some product and and machine learning should help that product be built but it's not it, it is not a sort of an end in and of itself um and and then to get to the end of having a good product that is useful to people usually you need good data um I, I feel like uh, you sort of, with your experience, like, what are your tips and best practices on how to do data labeling in and NLP and, and, like, just in general, better?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I spent a long time, uh, kind of early on at Primer, managing sort of the data labeling process for the applied research team, um, and there is a specific kind of a step-by-step process that we've seen work really well. Um, which is first the engineer uh, building the model should label 50 to 100 examples by themselves by hand, because that'll give you a firsthand look at kind of what's actually in the data, uh, sort of what types of distinctions that you'll need to make between different types uh, of examples. It'll give you a sense of maybe the different classes that exist, for example, if you have a classification task and like whether or not you've forgotten any classes and sort of your initial conceptualization of the task and need to add them in later. Um, then you go in and you write down some solid definitions of those classes and concepts that you're trying to get the model to identify. Um, you should include instructions on how to handle like specific edge cases. Um, ideally, you know, you want to have like, kind of types of edge cases as opposed to like very specific edge cases like uh, oh always tag University of Arizona as a location or something like that, uh, you should say instead you know tag universities as locations, um, because that's uh, that's kind of a more useful general rule. Um, then, uh, as you have. Um, kind of better instructions, you can iteratively get larger batches of documents labeled by uh, external partners or by other folks within the company who are willing to help with labeling. Uh, And let's say like 100 or 200 at a time. Um, This gives you the opportunity to spot and correct any kind of misconceptions that uh, labelers have about the task or that you have about the task. and to add any kind of necessary uh, clarifications to the instructions that have become apparent once you've been exposed to like more of the data distribution. Um, And so kind of iteratively, like I said, uh, as the labeling team understands the task better, um, you can actually increase the batch size. uh, So you don't have to be doing small batches of 100 or so. Like when the labelers actually really get the task, like you can give them a thousand and then they'll come back like just as high quality as before.
0: Yeah, I like that that's so practical. I feel like this is, uh, it just makes sense. Um, the, the, I feel like the next sort of logical step is once you do that, you want to start automating stuff, right? And and so, like, how do you know or how do you automate the process in general? And then when, when does that make sense and when does it not make sense? Like, who shouldn't be automating the labeling process?
1: Yes, um, so there you definitely want to tread carefully with automation in, in this, uh, the data labeling and curation process. Um, so like things that can be automated, um, sampling new documents to be labeled uh, based on some pre-specified criteria, um, you know, similarity between document <laughs> vectors um, uh, for like documents that your model got wrong previously or that it found challenging in the last training run. Uh, you can automate applying pre-labels to your documents uh, in like, um, I guess this is kind of a semi-supervised way, but basically you take your existing model and then you apply them to the new documents that you want to get labeled. uh, And then you just give the labelers uh, the labels for those documents. Um, Mm -hmm. You don't want to do this too early on though, because it could actually bias the labelers to like you know include your models mistakes in the data and not correct those because they're like inclined to listen to the model you want to do this when your model is already pretty good ideally uh, and you're kind of going that last mile to make it amazing Mm -hmm. Um, you can also automate uh, gathering feedback from end users Uh, this is particularly relevant for people who make kind of consumer facing products um, but it is also relevant for b2b products Um, Because you can build kind of a feedback mechanism straight into the product. um, And then you can ingest those results to look through later um, in terms of what users found kind of incongruous as like an output Mm -hmm. of the model. They're like, oh, this isn't right. Um, You should give them the opportunity to tell you that even if you're not gonna use it right away. (laughs) Um, Things that you can't automate would be doing the actual error analysis um, and recognizing those patterns uh, in the examples that your model got wrong. Like this is all still entirely manual. And one of the things that we wanna make much, much easier uh, at Aquarium. Um, Mm -hmm. So like being able to kind of explore your test data set and figuring out like, what are the commonalities between these examples that my model got wrong? That's still a very kind of um, cognitive process that you have to do because I don't know there just isn't really an automated way of doing that right now mm-hmm. um and then lastly getting a sense of whether or not the model is actually good enough to what you what you need to use it for um usually that requires uh kind of input from some stakeholders um so you can't really automate like oh you know my model has 99 accuracy therefore it's good enough like that's not guaranteed um it depends on the task it depends on you know what's in that last one percent of accuracy you know if your model has a 100 percent precision and zero percent recall <laughs> that's not very useful um and so yeah you you definitely need to kind of have human eyes on the model's outputs rather than just relying on the metrics
0: yeah yeah that that um makes sense i feel like those the things that you said we can't automate also really relate to the, the whole realm of monitoring right because you need to sort of uh, anchor the results of your model in reality and that's usually still hard to automate and you, you just you just need a person to look at these things. Um, like again, part of the idea here is a metric is not probably going to ever be good enough. Um, especially for complex tasks, you're still going to do to want to do predictions and then qualitatively assess those predictions to a certain extent. Um, and then the the second part, which is like the decision to maybe deploy a model or to switch the main model with the new model or something like that, that still seems to, to me as well, like speaking to companies. Um it's something people would want to automate, but I haven't heard of anyone successfully doing that. Um, maybe Google. With uh, ad models and things like that, but but it's it's yeah it's relatively not uh, uh, pervasive, and and most of the people most of companies still do this um, still do this manually. Um, Yeah,
1: like there are ways of kind of monitoring whether your model has drifted too much from like the last version to the new version. Like you can analyze the uh, like distribution of classes uh, of your model's predictions. you can, uh, I lost my train of thought again. Um, yeah, no. But yeah, there, there are things you can do. Uh, people have made like automated tests um, for like the easier examples. Um, mm-hmm. So like examples that your model should definitely get right. And then you like run the model mm-hmm. through those before you deploy it. And sometimes people catch things like, oh, you know, we, we had a bug in the training code and now the model is like acting completely crazy. Um, so you can catch certain pathological examples like that, but like sometimes the differences can be more subtle.
0: Yeah, there are a few good packages uh, um, for these things. I think, like great expectations and then deep checks uh, more recently, I think are mm-hmm. are doing a great job on this front. um, and it's it's very necessary. Like it's again, it's it's the same old uh, issue from uh, from software development where you won't have bugs if you don't write any tests, right? um yeah so so like yeah definitely unit testing for data and models is is a great idea it's usually for the basic mistakes it's almost effortless to do it and then it, it has the potential to save you so much uh grief so it, it's it's definitely it's definitely very worth it i i had the chance to speak and it does seem like part of what you're doing at aquarium relates to this it's a bunch of people who are working on ways to help you as a user understand the, the examples that your model is having a hard time on or to maybe anticipate examples that your models are going to have a hard time in production. I feel like that's still very early, but, but I'm excited about that. I think that there is potential to improve that experience. And then that also ties back into labeling because ideally you, you'd want to automate that entire process, find those hard samples, uh, label them uh, or relabel them, then push them back into the training set uh, and, and improve your model so I, I think that there's there's a lot of good work to be done there and there are a lot of things that I guess will stay manual and that's okay like you still probably want the human in the loop just to make sure that the model is doing something that is actually useful to humans um, mm-hmm. I, I guess we'll be in a like I, I, I try to avoid the uh, robot takeover stuff but I guess we'll be in a very bad position if if we don't need humans anymore, because robots decide what's good for them, and we don't matter. Um, so yeah, but, but
1: yeah, I prefer not to think about that. That's pretty far in the future.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the the I, I guess the another question that comes up here is, um, so I, I think a lot of the things that you, you said relate to the fact that there is a lot in common between um, like good data labeling or good data treatment, and and sort of product management, like treating your data as if it was a product that you need to um, you need to work on. There's the whole MVP stage. You tr- you do the things yourself. You do things manually before you try to you know set out rules and then automate that and then extend it to other people within your team um, and, and, and things like that. Um, one important thing in in like uh, uh, product management, or maybe maybe this is true for for entrepreneurship, but you want to shorten the iteration cycle, be able to learn quickly, and then improve the the product that you're working on. So, how long is an iteration cycle for data labeling? Like, how fast could it happen? Could it uh, work if you have done a good job of automating things?
1: Yeah, and that's a great observation between um, kind of this iteration cycle and product management. Um, data should definitely be kind of a first class object in terms of your ML project management. Um, in terms of how long an iteration cycle is, you know, hopefully a few days or less uh, if you have a really tight communication loop with your labeling team. Um, like, you know, maybe you have them uh, in a connected Slack channel, and so if the labelers have questions while they're labeling, they can just ask you, uh, and you can tell them um, if you're online, of course. Um, but yeah, like. It gets uh, it gets shorter over time. Um, so of course, like you said, in the MVP stage, when you're kind of um, really trying to hammer out like the right definitions of everything and catch uh, kind of, you know, the 80% of the the 20% of the edge cases that are going to handle 80% of the uh, examples, um, then that those uh those cycles are a little bit longer, but kind of mm-hmm. once your uh, labeling team starts to understand the task really well, you know they can get the documents back to you quickly. QA can be done quickly, um, and so yeah, hopefully a few days or less, depending on the batch size. Fair
0: enough. I think that's a good. Um like uh, rule of thumb or order of magnitude. If you're thinking about building out a labeling function within your organization or working with people, I think that this is either a good place to aim for or it will give you sort of a range of of what you're looking at uh, when you're iterating on data. Um, Yeah,
1: and I should caveat like that's for NLP. Uh, I can't speak to um, kind of the vision space where, you know, the data sets tend to be larger. Um, but for NLP documents, you know, you can generally get like a good improvement with your model, um, with another like 300 to 500 documents.
0: Interesting. I guess I'll, I have to have a discussion with someone working on the computer vision space to compare notes, but, but yeah, I think that this sure. is still probably a good order of magnitude. Um, like, I, yeah, I guess you also have transfer learning with computer vision. You have shorter, potentially shorter iteration cycles as well. Um, but it's interesting. Um, so in the end, one of the, one of the challenges here is most of the um, NLP tasks are not labeling NLP papers. And so that means that you have stakeholders that maybe are domain experts, but they're not sort of um, from the area of, of expertise that you are an expert in. And so there is this question of, of how do you make this accessible or optimized for shortening the iteration cycle and, and things like that. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about that as well.
1: Yeah, so I've worked with um, a lot of outsourced teams, a lot of labeling teams, uh, and I've personally labeled a lot of data in various labeling tools. Um, and so when you're kind of designing uh, this process of labeling, um, you should help your user do the correct thing. Um, so like said another way, make it easy for users not to do the wrong thing. Uh, so, for example, you know, if you, if you have kind of your own in-house labeling platform or you're, you're trying to select a labeling tool, look for something like, you know, snapping to the span if your task is to highlight spans mm-hmm. um, instead of allowing, you know, kind of white space on the sides or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do things like highlighting possible errors, like if, uh, if some punctuation has been included in the span, you can call that out mm-hmm. visually. Um, Keyboard shortcuts and navigation uh, makes things so much faster. Um, You can also use uh, information about the task to prevent doing the wrong thing. For example, um, for relationship extraction, you have uh, kind of two entities that can be related to each other. And often those entities will be like specific types of entities. Um, So let's say like uh, organizations collaborating with other organizations on a joint venture or something like that. Um, so like as you're designing highlighting for that, like if someone has an organization selected, um, and the relationship they're going to make is the collaborated with organization, you can kind of make the other non-organization entities less prominent and kind of, um, Mm. make the organization entities more visible. And then it's easier kind of just quickly to scan the page and find the one that you want to connect to. Um, you can also even just completely prevent making relationships between like the wrong entity types because that's just something that you have to go back and fix in your data later. Um, so you might as well just prevent it at the labeling stage. Um, and then lastly, you should definitely try to minimize kind of the number and complexity of actions that you need to label. So like. A big pet peeve of mine is actions that require click and drag, um, because some folks working on annotation teams are using a touchpad to label. You know, like they're working on a laptop; they're not working at a desktop computer, and this is a lot less accessible for them. Um, not to mention, it just takes longer. Um, so, if you can do, you know, click here and then click there uh, for kind of the destination, that can be a lot better than clicking and dragging.
0: That that's really nice. I I like that as well. I feel like there's. Um design plays such an important role in everything that we do, right? Whether it's software design or interface design and all of those things, they make a huge difference in how things are are done and how, like, how we can make them uh, better for the people that are, are doing the work, but also for the results. Like usually this translates into better labels. Right. Um, and so, so that, that is, I, I like that there's a lot of, uh, of great tips here. If we have listeners from any of the labeling tools, Um, then there are a lot of great ideas to implement here. Okay, so one of the main topics that we sort of like to discuss in this podcast is is deploying machine learning and machine learning models to production. Um, I I think that we discussed a bunch of sort of more complex setups for deployment. So I'm curious, how do you deploy complex NLP pipelines, especially when you have a combination of models um, and data processing steps into production?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, so usually models are deployed in a, a containerized fashion, uh, as many folks will probably be familiar with. Um, so you'll you'll usually have uh, one model or model type per container. Um, but sometimes, like you said, you'll need to chain two models together. Uh, for example, for relationship extraction, first you have to actually extract the named entities from the document using a named entity recognition model. And then you would also want to extract relationships between those entities with uh Um, usually a relationship classification model that takes Mm -hmm. entity pairs and then tells you whether or not they're related in that particular way. Um, Mm -hmm. And so for these kinds of model stacks um, or cascades or pipelines or whatever you like to call them, uh, it can be ideal to kind of deploy all the models in one container if they'll actually fit. um, Mm -hmm. Because then uh, if you can fit all the models in GPU with enough uh, memory space left to perform inference reasonably quickly, Uh, that allows you to kind of minimize latency. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is particularly important if you have something that's uh, uh, kind of a real-time application as opposed to like uh, a long-running processing pipeline. Mm -hmm. Um, It also allows you to create kind of a more consistent interface um, between uh, kind of how you're sending and receiving data to the model servers. because you don't need to be like sending some servers structured inference data from a different mm. model. Uh, you can just send a document and then get back the results. Um, and so that kind of uh, can make it a lot easier to interact with those uh, those deployed models um, for the services that do interact with them. Um, yeah, that's about it, I would say.
0: So that makes a lot of sense, I guess one sort of follow-up question to that is if you're deploying these systems into production um do you like the interfaces that you just described do you enforce them let's say culturally or is that something that you build into the system somehow uh, uh to, to make it so that you have these standardized um uh interfaces and things like that and also what happens if you can't fit m- multiple models in 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 one container, do you just give up on the standardized interface or, or is there any other creative solution?
1: Yeah, for your last question, um, I'm not sure that there are any creative ways around that. Um, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll just end up having to uh, do the non-ideal thing and then maybe from the outside, make it look as if you're just sending in the document and getting the results back. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of how you can kind of enforce that across the organization, I mean, it probably depends on how big the organization is. Um, If you're like a relatively small company with like only a few hundred people um, and you have like a single platform team managing all the ML deployments, they can usually kind of uh, standardize that interface and everyone just has to use that. Um, Mm -hmm. But once you have many different teams kind of proliferating their own uh, ML solutions, uh, that can be a little bit more difficult to, uh, to standardize.
0: So, yeah, I I agree. I think that one of the things, I guess I've also had the chance to speak with larger organizations that they also try to standardize it culturally. Like, I I mean, when I say culturally, I just mean someone defines an interface or a set of interfaces and your model or or transformation has to comply with one of those interfaces. Otherwise, it just won't get deployed for a bunch of different reasons. Like one, one of those reasons could be that it's harder to work with, but a more reasonable explanation is just, you you want like an optimized uh, uh, you want to optimize performance and if you have random interfaces you might not be able to do that. Um, the simplest example for this is the whole uh, pandas uh, Spark uh, compatible APIs and stuff like that. Usually when you get to deploying at large scale, you you sort of have to uh, trade off certain certain uh, actions or functions in these frameworks because they're not efficient there's no good way to make them efficient. And so the limitation is like, you can't use the this set of, of functions if you want to be deployed, otherwise latency will be too too high and we can't afford that. Um, right. and, and then just to offer uh, one idea on how you can still standardize, like even if you do need to chain models, one way um, that I, I think we've seen this uh, in one of the companies that we spoke with is You can have one input interface, which receives that document and one output interface, which outputs, whatever it is you want to output. And then from those sort of gateways, you have a standardized model interface and that gets like some uh, standardized input gets out some standardized output. And then you can move that along between the different models. So usually the, uh, the scientists or whoever it is, that's deploying their specific model within this larger, uh, uh, system they don't need to worry about the, the first input and the last output. They just need to worry about com- like having a compliant interface for the prediction part. Um, mm. it, it's, not, it's not always possible, right? Because you can say like, well, what if the dimensions of my tensor are different per model and things like that? But you can relatively easily uh, generalize that part because it's just like different dimensions for the same type um as opposed to like you say if you're if if the user uploads a document and and obviously you're not working with raw documents in in your models then you need to have some solution uh for getting that into the language of the model um so yeah that that makes a lot of sense and I think that there's a lot of interesting things um that are maybe too specific to get into here uh but you covered a lot of them and that's that's really awesome um I'll I, I want to end with a few sort of Higher level questions uh, that I like to ask all of my guests. So, um, the first is like, what are you personally excited about? Or like, what are the strongest, most exciting trends in ML and MLOps?
1: Yeah, great question. There are so many great things going on um, in ML right now. Uh, so, one trend that I'm seeing, of course, as someone who has worked on one of these is low code and no code tools. Um, it's becoming easier and easier uh, as a business user to actually have access to these very powerful models and uh, model deployments. Um, uh, And you don't have to have like, you know, two years of experience in statistics and writing Python uh, in order to like build and deploy a model that could be useful for your team. Um, I'm also noticing that tooling for technical users is becoming kind of higher level. Uh, so something like Aquarium is a great example of this, you know, um, it's an interface that you can actually use to explore your data and to e- easily uh, kind of create issues around um, certain patterns that you're seeing, whereas like, you know, Previously, when I was trying to do error analysis on my models, I was like manually printing the documents uh, and then, you know, like what kind of mistake the model made and then just like scrolling through them in my Jupyter notebook, um, which, you know, obviously requires me to like switch between writing code and then thinking. And then there's just kind of a lot of cognitive overhead with that. um, Mm -hmm. And it makes things slower. Uh, So having these higher level interfaces is going to help um, really streamline this iteration step uh, for technical users, I think. Um, The ML tooling space is also growing generally, Um, so I'm noticing just a huge proliferation of ML tools um, and many of these pain points uh, that I described about, for example, uh, the manualness of data set exploration, data augmentation, error analysis, Uh, These things will eventually be kind of a thing of the past uh, in terms of like how tedious they are um, and just how much manual work they require. Mm -hmm. Um, There are also more platforms that are trying to abstract away some of the DevOps parts of MLOps like uh, model deployments. Um, Mm -hmm. I think FERTA is a good example of this um, by making uh, deploying, managing, and monitoring your models uh, significantly easier. Um, The data infrastructure space is consolidating also. Um, That's another cool trend that I'm seeing. Um, And this has the benefit of allowing ML engineers to spend a lot less time thinking about like the data engineering and the the pipelining aspects um, Mm -hmm. of getting data into their models and out of their models uh, because like the data storage and processing providers are starting to um, also provide kind of adjacent integrated services to make their products stickier. So like Snowflake's acquisition of Streamlit is a good example of this.
0: Yeah. So that last one is, I, I find that very interesting and and to me, it was a bit counterintuitive in the beginning, but it makes sense in hindsight. Um, I I think that part of this, when this is sort of maybe a thread that connects the, the, all of the points that you, you said, but especially the ones related to infrastructure and tooling is that up until relatively recently, it felt like people are not really sure what the, proper components of a workflow in machine learning are, and now that it seems, it's still, we're still not there, I still feel like there's work to be done on on sort of making the ML realm less fuzzy, Um, but I think we're heading towards that direction, and the main advantage for users in that case is if you know the boundaries of a certain task, you can do it much better, and so the tools are going to be better, as you say, and and that's why like everyone's going to benefit, right? You're you're going to have less um, cognitive overload in deciding what tools you want because it will be clearer what value they're going to give you as part of your workflow, and then they're also going to be better at what they do because they won't have to say that they do everything in order for them to, for you to perceive them as valuable. So I, I think that that's. I agree with you. Like I think it's really exciting there are a lot of interesting things happening. Um if you are one of those people that feel like everything is confusing and you can't make sense of anything going on in the field, I think that the next few years are going to change uh to change that and things are going to be clearer and and more well defined. So hold hold on, it'll be it, 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 the, the good part is coming. Um the the next question I I have um, is this is uh, something that comes up with every person I speak to in, in the field, which is as you say, so much is happening. How do you keep up to date with things? like, like how maybe what channels do you follow? Um, or, or what things do you do on a regular basis to stay up to date?
1: Yeah, totally. Uh, so, among friends and coworkers, uh, I have I'm a little bit notorious for being an information junkie. Um, so, hopefully, I can be helpful with this. Um, <laughs> particularly for NLP, some of the sources that I follow are um, NLP highlights. That's a really great podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, researchers will often go on there to discuss uh, kind of their interesting new findings. Uh, they usually discuss it in more accessible terms than the uh, the actual paper will. Um, And so, especially if you plan on reading the paper later, you know, having that initial higher level introduction to it can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been on hiatus for the last few months, but the archive is definitely well worth visiting um, because there are some really good ones on there. Uh, Sebastian Reuter has an amazing blog and newsletter. Like he's so good. Um, It's an absolute treasure trove. Uh, He doesn't update as frequently now, but like, you know, the updates when they do come out are still very juicy uh, and Mm -hmm. they make up for the time that was, uh, that you waited um software engineering daily uh is also really really good um great podcast for keeping tabs on what's going on in software generally so keeping track of trends in uh you know containerization and devops and uh in addition to ml they specifically have like an ml channel that you can subscribe to if you don't care that much about the other stuff um There's also Twimmel AI, uh, another podcast that I've been fortunate to guest on, um, which is awesome and covers like tons of different areas of ML, uh, not just NLP. Uh, Talk Python to me is great for general Python stuff and they often will have ML specific guests or data science specific guests. Um, And then I also have a couple of um, articles that I can send along for you to put in the show notes or something. Um, Taming the Tail by A16Z is a really great read on the challenges of running an ML-first business, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly how it compares to running like a more standard SaaS business and how you can uh, think more clearly about like what you can expect for your margins and where you can expect most of your costs to be and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then every year, I also check out the State of AI report, uh, which which I thought about particularly when you were talking about, um, you know, if you're someone who's looking on and and seeing like this massive proliferation of things. Um, (laughs) so like, you know, there's the kind of an infamous image from, from those reports where it'll just be a big square and, and it'll have multiple different squares of like different, uh, companies, uh, in different areas of ML. Um, and, uh, There are are more and more companies every year, Um, but it's a great way to kind of um, to help make sense of kind of uh, what are the different areas right now? What changes are we observing? Um, Mm -hmm. And that's the way that I that's part of how I can notice, like some of these higher level trends that are going on is just hearing about like what's going on with other companies, because otherwise I'm pretty like zoomed in on, you know, what I'm working on and what's directly adjacent to what I'm doing. And then I would also suggest following uh, any researchers that you like on Twitter, um, any research groups, um, stuff like that, so that you can hear about it when a splashy new paper comes out or something.
0: Those are a lot of great recommendations. The ones that I do know, um, I I second them, like uh, Sebastian Ruder is is awesome. Uh, I really love his his newsletter. Um, The, yeah, I (laughs) I feel like every time I see another, I think the technical term is Loom Escape, but I might be wrong, the, the one with the, all of the logos, it it sort of is exciting and, and bothers me at the same time. There are so many, it's just ridiculous. Um, and yeah, it like depends on which list you want to believe, but it's like somewhere between 300 and like 5,000 tools. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. I, I understand the frustration of people uh, uh, when they see those. um. So I guess you gave a bunch of recommendations that are machine learning related, but I'll ask if you have any other recommendations that are maybe not machine learning related, or not you know not related to your job at all? Whether it's Netflix shows or whatever you want to recommend.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Um, I do have kind of a, just a general sort of um, mindset recommendation that I can give, which is you know. If you're listening to this and you're new to the space, whether that's like ML or NLP or anything else, um, if this seems overwhelming, like we kind of just mentioned, uh, you would be amazed like how much you can just learn by osmosis by listening to things like this. Um, I actually attribute a lot of my own success in transitioning into data science from a less technical background uh, to the fact that I just consumed tons of data science and NLP related content. Um, And eventually, you know, you learn the vocab, you learn kind of what the main problems in the space are, you learn how people address certain issues, uh, you learn about like which tools and frameworks are actually the ones that people use instead of just the ones that exist out there in theory um, Mm -hmm. and that you might have to learn someday. Uh, and a lot of other practical details that'll help you in kind of your day to day journey just by listening to practitioners talk about it. You can also do like informational interviews and things like that. Um, like, I did also read, you know, textbooks and everything, but to get a picture of what things actually look like on the day to day, the podcasts, the conference talks, and other kinds of conversations are just super helpful. Um, cause without these, you can really get the impression that you need to know every possible thing, uh, before you can be even remotely competent in this field, but that's not the case at all. Like there are so many of us who are like very expert in one particular area, but if you asked us to do something in some other area, we'd be like, uh, you know, give me a week to go learn it. <laughs> um, and so as long as you're scrappy and you keep a beginner's mind, like you can learn whatever you need to learn to make really cool stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I also I, I think that that's an awesome point. Um, and I, I think in general, the skill, if you will, that you have to you have to possess is just wanting to learn, right? Like, yeah. there's there's so many things you can do if you just want to learn. And I, I think part of that is being genuinely um, excited about about a field. It's harder if you're just, you know, forcing yourself to do it because you heard that software developers yeah. are, make, make a lot of money if they work at Google, then that you're going to have a harder time. It's not impossible, and some people are talented enough. But I think if you're actually enthusiastic, then becoming an information junkie, as, as you called it earlier, uh, makes a lot of sense. I'll add one tip in that vein, um, which I think is true regardless of what thing you, you want to do. Like It doesn't have to be machine learning development or, or anything like that. Um, and now with COVID, we've had a, a bunch of time where um, all the meetups and events were virtual. Um, this is—I'm still advising everyone to keep safe and not get COVID. It's still not fun, <laughs> but if you if you have an opportunity to go to a meetup that has sort of in-person meeting, then speaking to people like the the talks are important. But if you speak to other people that are either in your position or ahead of you a few years, and you can learn from their experience and build those relationships, that is super important, especially if you don't come with a background that is, is as you say, like a computer science or, or technical or something like that. Um, b- building relationships is super important no matter what you do. And the ability to find people that have sort of gone a few miles in, in your future shoes um, and then learning from their experiences is, is really invaluable. Um, so you should do that. If you can't go in person, Go to the virtual meetups sometimes they do have mingling in the beginning, uh, even though on zoom it's not as fun and there's no pizza uh, unless you order it in advance, but, but yeah you should totally do that Oh, and if you go to the meetups don't only also speak to people that's also important. Um, This is, this is speaking from from experience Uh, yeah so. I do have
1: one more uh, tip that I can give around, uh, it's kind of a meta advice around learning generally. Um, So learning how to learn is actually a skill um, and one that you can improve at actually very effectively. Um, There are certain techniques that you can use like space repetition, um, kind of uh, forcing yourself to recall answers instead of just uh, reading uh, your notes and saying like, oh yeah, I remember that. Um, And two people who I can recommend that are like very good at teaching this material are Scott Young. He's kind of the uh, blogger king of learning how to learn. Um, He like uh, basically did a four year MIT CS degree um, in a very, very short amount of time just from home. Um, (laughs) And uh, Cal Newport is also really, really um, good to listen to in this area. Um, So I would check out their stuff, Uh, Ultra Learning by Scott Young is a really good book that kind of encapsulates like most of his recommendations. Um, And then Michael Nielsen also has a really good blog on how to use uh, spaced repetition using Anki, or Anki, however you want to say it, um, which is uh, kind of a a flashcard app that's like highly customizable to various use cases. Um, so definitely check those out, um, they will help you learn a lot of things in a very short amount of time, uh, instead of like banging your head against the same material trying to, trying to study it less effectively.
0: So many, there's, there, there are going to be so many links in this. Podcast episode description. <laughs> yeah, I'll this send you all awesome. the links
1: so you don't have to go <laughs> find them.
0: <laughs> um, wow, so this is, this has been awesome. I really had uh, a lot of fun. So yeah, thank you, Charlene, for taking part. Um, yeah
1: for sure thanks for inviting me
0: and and thank you uh to all the listeners or viewers it was a pleasure having you here as well and i'll see you in the next episode uh so bye everyone bye everyone thank you for listening to the emelops podcast if you enjoyed this episode share it with a friend or add a review on apple podcasts or spotify or wherever you get this episode thank you and see you next time